Well, tonight we're going to read from the book of Malachi, and Malachi chapter 1. It's the last book of the Old Testament, just before Matthew. Malachi chapter 1, and if you're reading from a pew Bible this evening, you'll find it on page 960, page 960, Malachi chapter 1. And in the evenings, I'm going to be preaching through Malachi, and tonight we are going to start in chapter 1. This is God's word to us here this evening. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. And Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they will rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? And if I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have, you defiled, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now I implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great amongst the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it. By saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at, the contemptuously, you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. And when you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable meal in his flock and vows to give it but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Well, this evening as we come to God's word, please do open it with me to the book of Malachi chapter 1. And we're going to work our way through this passage 
this evening. And our big idea this evening as we work through this is simply this. To genuinely worship God means that you will live a radically different life. To genuinely worship God means that you will live a radically different life. That's my only point this evening. That's my big idea. And that's what we're going to unpack as we go through this. To genuinely worship God means that you will live a radically different life. Now, we're going to have to use our imaginations for this opening illustration this evening. We've got a boy and a girl. The boy is called James, and the girl is called Lily. All right? Now, maybe you'll be able to resonate with some things in this story. But Lily and James, they grow up together. They are neighbors. And from about the age of 16, James starts to fancy Lily. They get the bus every day. He helps her with her homework. He gives her all of his revision notes. They go off to university, and he writes her assignments for her. He covers for her in class when she doesn't show up. He's always on call when she gets a flat tire at three in the morning. It's James that comes to her help. He also mends her heart after every failed boyfriend and broken relationship. James is the one who is always there. He protects her. He yearns for her, and yet she never notices him. She takes him for granted. All the coffee that he buys her, all the times that he supplies the umbrella on a rainy walk to class, all the times that he walks with her and has to listen to her heartbreaks, her dramatic life, her next disaster in class or work, he's always there. He listens, he prays, he gives counsel. He gives her lifts. He conveniently times his journeys around her so that they can get the train or share the car to go places. All the late night lifts, all the early morning phone calls to wake her up for class or for work. He never misses her birthday. He always sends a card or a message. He never misses important dates in her life. All of the disasters, all of the moments of crisis, he has never failed her. And yet she is never there for him. She never really listens. She doesn't really care. She isn't invested in his life. She's always following and chasing after the latest boy with money, good looks, and nice hair, and poor James is left by the side. Then one day, with his heart breaking, he decides he's had enough, and he says to himself, I'm going to have to put distance between the pair of us, but I'll give it one last chance and see if she will notice me. And he sits Lily down, and he says to Lily, Lily, look, I've got something that I really want to tell you. Lily says, go on ahead, James, what do you want to tell me? And he says this, I have loved you. I have loved you. Well, Lily laughs. You've loved me? How have you loved me? James thinks it's pretty obvious from the age of 16 that he has loved her in many different ways. Lily is blind. She is ignorant. She is rude. She is distant. She is unthankful. She is uncaring. She is forgetful. And the problem is that James doesn't have her heart. Well, as we come to Malachi chapter 1, look at how this book starts. God speaks, and what does he say? I have loved you. I have loved you. It does not start with the people 
and what they have and have not done, but it starts with the Lord, and he has these first words, I have loved you. And I want you to hear that tonight. If you're taking notes, write that down. The Lord speaks, and he says, I have loved you. And tonight, Christian brother and sister, if you have been struggling with assurance this past week, if you've been struggling with trying to follow Jesus and live for him the way that you ought to, or if you've been caught in the middle of bad news, annoying friendships, the busyness of life, the pressure of family, the pressure of that project and work that needs done, and you're wondering where is God in the midst of all of this, and you feel like throwing in the spiritual towel. Stop. The first words that I want you to hear tonight are God's words, and he says, I have loved you. God here in the book of Malachi and in chapter 1 is revealing and he's unfolding the nature of his love, not first as something warm and gentle and kind and tender, although it is that, but as something awesome and as something strange and fearful in its electing freedom. There is in God's love a great and an awesome sovereignty. And that is what God draws the people's attention to first. If we want a summary of the book of Malachi, it's simply this. It's a love letter to God's wandering people. It's a love letter to God's wandering people. And this is something of the great drama of God and his chosen people, the unfaithful bride. God says, I have loved you. How do they respond? How have you loved us? Just like our little story, they are blind. They are ignorant and rude, distant, unthankful, uncaring, forgetful. And God does not have their heart. How should the people have responded? They should have responded with Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. God says, I have loved you. They should have responded. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. But they don't. What's going on here in the story as we arrive into the book of Malachi? Well, the Israelites, they've returned from the the exile in Babylon, and they've rebuilt the temple, and the Lord's hand has been mighty upon them. He has brought this remnant back, and the people have not learned their lesson. They've grown skeptical of God's love. They've grown careless in worship, and as the series goes on, we'll see in, in many other ways the way that they have mistreated God. And here we have in, our chapter, in chapter 1, the first and second dispute of six. And it's all to do about their worship, their hearts, their love, and how they're so far away from God. And yet God comes and he speaks to them. I have loved you. And tonight we can see something of ourselves in Israel. Without thinking about it, we so quickly can have the same response to God. Whenever he says, I have loved you, We start to question him, God, how have you loved me? It can be something trivial like, God, how have you loved me? I don't have a holiday home. God, how have you loved me? I didn't get that dream career that I was always after. God, how can you say that you've loved me or do love me and all that I am going through? Look at the pain and suffering that I am in. And whenever we we respond like that, the problem is that God does not have our hearts. So what is the antidote to this? 
What's the antidote to God not having our hearts? Well, look in our opening passage and the opening section of this passage. What does God do? He points Israel all the way back. He points them back. He says, look, he's going to give them a history lesson. Look back to Jacob and to Esau, the grandsons of Abram, Isaac's boys. Look at how I've brought the promise from Abram through Isaac, through Jacob. Do you remember Moses and Egypt or do you forget that too? He's taken them back. Look, I have prospered you. I've destroyed your enemies in the past and I'll do it again. He's showing them and telling them of his unconditional covenantal love and how it is still upon them through all that has happened. I love you. And we often need a history lesson, don't we? In fact, we need it every week. As we come under the sound of the gospel, we need to hear it again and again and again of what God has done for us, how he has loved us and blessed us, and yet we are forgetful, we are unthankful, and we don't see his hand upon our lives. Now tonight as we work through this, as we work through what it means to worship God, that we will live in light of that and live a radically different life. Hear me tonight, everything that I am going to say and about to unpack for us is framed by what God says in verse two, okay? So hold verse two, look at verse two. Remember verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord. So that frames everything else that we're going to say. The things that God will say in this passage is not said out of hatred or anger, but out of love. So if we want to live radically different lives, then we must see and understand verses two through five and the significance of this, God's awesome, strange, and fearful love, the sovereignty of God's love, the beautiful love of the Father, the lavish love of Yahweh in our lives. And that's the root of the problem here in Malachi 1. The people are just going through the motions. It's external and their hearts are not in it. Look at verse 6. Where is God's honor? They're treating God worse than what they will treat the governor in verse 8. The God of angel armies, the one who has formed the galaxies from nothing, the one who has designed each beautiful thing in this earth, the one who has shaped the beauty of the morns and who has has, uh, taken and cut the Grand Canyon, the one who puts the beautiful rings in our trees and who breathes life into us. No honor. The governor, a person who has a little bit of influence, someone who has the ability to make them feel happy or miserable, well, they respect him. And they don't respect the great king. How do they respect him? Well, they bring gifts and their actions would show it. But here in the temple, the priests and the people, the whole of society, they're offering blind animals, lame animals, disease, and it's madness. God was meant to have the perfect animal, the best animal, the prized animal, and not the sick runt. And to make the situation even worse, verses 12 through 13, the people defile the temple and what they bring, even though it's the worst of the worst, even though it's just a little bit on the side, they say, what a burden, what an inconvenience. They tut, they throw their heads in the air and they say, it'll do rightly. Friends, tonight, The origin of careless worship is a failure to see and feel the greatness of God. I'm going to say that again. The origin of careless worship 
is, to, is a failure to see and to feel the greatness of God. Who is God? Why should we worship him? Verse 14, he is the great king. If you were here this morning, we thought a little bit about that. Verse 5, he is the, great, he, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. Verse 11, my name will be great among the nations. Verse 14, my name is to be feared among the nations. At God's name, the mountains will shake, the oceans will roar, the angels will bow, and one day every tongue will confess that he is God. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And yet the people here in Malachi 1, they're given more they're given more to the governor than what they're given to God. They're taking the, the runt of the pack, the little, the little lamb that isn't well or the little animal that isn't well, and they're throwing it in and they're saying to God, God will do you rightly. A failure to see the greatness of our God. And you see tonight, if you don't see the greatness of God, if you don't see who he is, then you will be bored with God and you will be excited by the things of this world because that's what's happening here in Malachi. They're bored by God. He doesn't have their heart. He doesn't have their affections, their love. So therefore, they're bored with him and they're excited by the things of this world. They chase and run after the things of the world rather than running after God. A commentator says this, if you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with streetlights. If you've never seen or felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and on the majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. Friends, what is your heart tonight? What has your heart tonight? Where is your treasure? Where is your satisfaction? If you're a Christian here tonight, then the New Testament tells us that it has to be in Jesus. That's where our treasure is. That's who is precious to us. That's where our satisfaction is. That Jesus has our heart. And tonight, if we claim that, if we say that, and we chase after other things, then we need to stop. Matthew 13, 44 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And in his joy, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought the field. Precious treasure. Joy in his heart. So tonight, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to worship him with genuine hearts and live radically different, then we have to be all in. We can't take a little bit of Jesus. We can't claim a ticket to heaven and eternal glory and then not live our lives in light of that. We cannot help but worship him. And yet often we run from him. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says this, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You love your father and your mother, yes, that's a good thing. Jesus, 5,000 times more. You love your children, your spouse, your friends. Yes, 
Jesus 5,000 times more. So Jesus has our hearts tonight. And whenever we talk about worship, we're not just talking about singing. We're talking about all of life. That's what worship is, that we live our lives for him. John 4, 23, 24, but the hour is coming, says Jesus, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Yes, we gather here on a Sunday to worship but every aspect of our lives as we scatter from here. Every thought process, every decision we make reveals our hearts and that is our worship. Now many of us live in a world where there's a great battle raging for our hearts. Just like in the time of Malachi, nothing has changed here. And often we have an improper view of God. And instead of taking this love that we have heard about, instead of taking the King of Kings and who he is and what he has done for us and getting it into our heads and then into our hearts, we often chase after other things. We run after satisfaction in the world. Verse 14 again speaks. He is the great King. The one whose name will be great among the nations. So we worship him, not other things. With all of our souls and with all of our might. What does our confession of faith say? It says this about worship. God is to be feared and to be loved and to be praised and to be called upon and to be trusted and to be served. So to worship Father, Son and Holy Spirit means that we will live all of our lives all in for Jesus. He is our satisfaction. Jesus is our joy. He is precious to us. Jesus has our heart. And Jesus has our head. He has our wallet tonight. He has our bedroom. He has our phone and our computer. Jesus has our thoughts. Jesus has our dreams. He has our hopes. He has our plans. He has our ambitions, our spouse, our children, our relationships. All of your big decisions, all of your small, small decisions. Jesus has them all. So we live as radically different people from the world around us. Because the world chases after selfish ambition. Do we see tonight how radical the gospel is? It's not just a religious movement. It's not just something that can be accepted here where we give God a little bit. It changes everything about us. And do you know what? Do you know, do you know what the worst thing about all of this is? What often breaks my heart and breaks many, many people's hearts is this is not how we see the gospel lived out. Often it looks like the gospel changes absolutely nothing in our lives. We're just going through the motions. We claim Jesus' name, but he has changed nothing about our hearts. That is not the gospel. 
for those at this time who were looking at the Israelites. The gospel didn't change anything for them. God didn't change anything for them. Worshiping God didn't change anything. It was of no cost to them. There was no joy. There was no change in their hearts. Can you imagine if you were looking at one of these people, what the comments would have been? Your God, you tell us he's the great God, the one who's to be feared amongst the nations, and yet you, you, you can't even give him your best, your best little lamb. You can't give him the best animal that you have. And you say he's the great king of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, tonight to be born again means that we have a new heart. Whenever God, the King of Kings, the one who is to be feared and to be honored, whenever he comes and changes us, he gives us a new heart. That's what it means to be born again. New desires, a shift in the orientation of our hearts. Not the world, but Jesus. And yet often to our shame, we think of worship like this. We think of worship as a burden, as a checklist, as a tick box, as an exercise, as a painful, boring, useless, pointless thing that has to be done. And friends, if that is us this evening, why do we even bother? I think some of us often have a fear of following Jesus too seriously. To be all in for Jesus brings an element of danger for us. We think if we are all in for Jesus, then we'll end up on the mission field and we'll have to leave beautiful Northern Ireland or you think that you'll end up maybe in ministry. And some of you may well end up in the mission field or in ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. But for most of us, being all in for Jesus doesn't mean that. It just means worshiping him with all of our hearts, with all of our lives, where he has placed us. Quiet people. Faithful people. Loving the Lord Jesus. So come unto the Lord being all in for him in worship doesn't mean that you have to surrender your dreams and your hopes and ambitions. Rather, it means that Jesus takes them and he changes them. And they're centered on him. So what do you have to fear for being all in for God? Absolutely nothing. First Thessalonians chapter 5, 9 through 11 tells us this. Gives us an insight into what it means to live a full life for the Lord for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. You see, Jesus here is not a weekend thing. It's not just a commitment or a belief. He's not just something that we tack on. He's not just a little badge that we get. What even is that? It's not the gospel. It's not the good news of Jesus Christ. That's not what we see here in Malachi. That's not what we see in the New Testament. If you follow Jesus tonight and then you chase after stuff or you say that you follow Jesus tonight and you chase after all the stuff of this world and you only think of Jesus 30 minutes before you come to church on a Sunday and once the benediction is said, you don't think of him throughout the rest of the week, and you claim that you're a Christian friend, address yourself with the gospel. Is that what it means to follow Jesus? I don't see it in the Bible. And yet what does our world tell us? What does churches in our world tell us? You'll be all right. 
You'll be okay. Keep coming along. Keep doing that. You know, keep, keep sort of half a foot in the world and a foot in with the Lord. Sort of take a little bit of him. Tack Jesus onto you and you'll be okay. You'll be okay. Friends, that's not the gospel. And that's not what God says here in Malachi chapter 1. A little bit, that's not enough. God wants and needs all of our hearts tonight. If you claim to follow him as a Christian. Friends, tonight, often this is how we live. We live with our hands like this. And in our hands we have our money and we have our friends and we have our family and we have our homes and we have our ambitions and our dreams. And whenever we come to Jesus, if we come to him, we, we don't even open our hands. Maybe slip a little bit of money out. But that's it. Clenched fists. Jesus, you're not coming into this part of my life. This is my life. I'll go along to church. I'll go through the practice, but you're not getting my life. Friends, he doesn't want us to have our hands like this, but instead he wants to have our hands like this. Jesus, take my money. My friends, my family, my life, my dreams, my ambitions, they're all yours. I'm keeping nothing for myself. I am trusting you because you are good and you are the king. So not like this, but like this. Why? Because Jesus spread his hands like this. So that we may be saved. So that we will have our satisfaction in him. So that we will have joy in him. Friends, quick question. Are you satisfied in him tonight? Have you ever sat with someone, and this is a great privilege that I've had. Have you ever sat with someone whenever they're dying? A believer. That's when you know if someone's satisfied in the Lord. Trusting the Lord. Clinging on to the Lord. As their earthly life slips away, they have a great assurance of their eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. What has your heart tonight, friends? You see, what is one of the functions of this passage tonight? It is this, that if you, if you are a fake Christian, that you will feel fake. And the purpose isn't so that you will feel bad about yourself, but if tonight you are a fake Christian, that you will know that you are fake, that you will feel that you are fake, and that you will run to Jesus so that you will be saved. That's what God's aim is here in Malachi chapter 1. He's telling them, please, Israel, stop this. Stop it right now. See that I love you. See that I love you. Stop this practice and run back to me. Verse 14. Cursed is the cheat. Friends, our passage tonight it's not about idol worship. It's not about pagan worship. They're coming along to worship God. They're coming along to worship Yahweh. Yet they're doing it in a mediocre way. It's lazy. It is forgetful. It is distant. It is uncaring. It is unthankful. It's apathetic. It's comfortable worship for them. 
Nigel's been leading us through the book of Revelation. What's worship like in the book of Revelation? It's not apathetic. Heal the lamb. Heal the lamb. The angels praise him. Do they do it with apathy? Not a bit. Here's a quote. I hate going to church. It is frustrating. It is boring. It's full of hypocrites who are just going through the motions. It's a massive waste of time. It's cold and it's heartless. We'd be safer saying nothing at all and closing the doors. Who says that? Presbyterian? Maybe. An atheist? Maybe. First hand. They're God's words. Oh, that one of you would shut the doors because I'm not pleased with you. Either we're all in or we're not. God heart, heart, God's heart breaks over the people here. He wants them to see him. He wants to see all that he has done for them. All the way through their history. So where do we go from here tonight? Remember we said about verse 2 right at the start. In spite of the people's checkered history here, in spite of their complicated present, what happens? God still loves his people. God doesn't bring judgment, but he comes with a word of love. Friends, tonight, our everyday apathy and worship for our God is met with God's extraordinary, lavish love in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we get that tonight? Our apathy is met with God's extraordinary, lavish love in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. What's our response to tonight? Our response isn't that we feel lowly, that we feel guilty or burdened, but our response coming away from tonight is, boy, I want to live my life worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to give him half. I don't want to give him a percentage. I want to give him all of my life. I don't want to live like this, but I want to live like this because Jesus died for me on the cross of Calvary. Because he loved me, I want to live for him. And I don't know what that means for me. I don't know what the future is going to hold for me, but he's a good God, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to live for him, and I'm going to worship him, worship him forever. Every day that he gives me, I'm going to rest in his love. So friends tonight, and this includes me, what do we need to do? We have to run to Jesus. We've got to run back to him. And we get up and we run back to him and we say, Father, we are sorry. Jesus, we are sorry for all the times where we didn't worship you. And we run to him. And he comes out to meet us. The Father's arms open wide. And he says, son and daughter, I am so glad that you see tonight that I have loved you. Here's a robe. Here's a great ring. Put it on your finger. You're my son and you're my daughter. Come and worship me. And he throws a great banquet for us. Friends, tonight we run back to Jesus. How do we become wholehearted worshipers? We hear these words, I have loved you. And we pray tonight that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he takes our cold hearts and he ignites in us adoration and praise. You are my people.
you are saved, rescued, redeemed, ransomed. You are sons and daughters of mine. To worship God then for us means that we will live radically different lives here in this world. Tonight, may God teach us here at Hill Street how to worship him with all of our lives. Let us pray. Father, you are our great King. You are the Lord Almighty. And Father, tonight we want to worship you because you have our hearts. Father, we thank you for your love. Even though we did not deserve it, Father, teach us how to worship you in spirit and in truth with all of our hearts, with all of our lives. And Father, help us to know this evening your forgiveness. We thank you for your open arms. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken us out of darkness, who has saved us, Father, you are good, and your love endures forever. We pray it in your Son's name. Amen.